The second reading is from Genesis chapter 50. It's the end of the book of Genesis, which started with uh, the creation story, moves right on up uh, through the life of Jacob. And on this Father's Day, I think uh, reading through the life of Jacob is uh, a good read, especially looking at things that you might not want to do as a father. Um, so this is getting near the end, and he had a son named Joseph, who he showed favoritism to. And because of that, his half-brothers um, disliked him, maybe even some of them hated him. They ended up throwing him into a pit, eventually sold him into slavery. Um, he, was, he rose to power, but then he was falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, where he languished for quite a while. Uh, through God's grace, he was brought out, became Pharaoh's right-hand man, and saved Egypt and much of the region from a seven-year famine. During that famine, uh, Jacob sent his other sons to seek to buy food, not knowing it was Joseph. Joseph made life a little difficult for them, but eventually revealed himself as their brother. Uh, he, he then had them bring Jacob, his father, to Egypt. And this passage picks up about that period when Jacob has just died. They've taken him back to Cana and buried him and now they're back in Egypt with their brother, Joseph. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I am in the place, I'm not in the place of God. You intended me no harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. You've probably heard this uh, phrase applied uh, to any number of celebrities or people of significance or power, uh, a phrase that goes something like this, I wish I was in their shoes, right? I wish I had their life. I'd like to be them. Maybe you've said that about some hero of yours. Perhaps um, if you're a little younger, maybe a sports hero. Maybe if you're a little older, somebody that you admire and respect greatly. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say of the biblical figure Job, I really wish I had his life. Did you ever hear anybody say that? I haven't. I actually don't think I've ever heard anybody say, I wish I had Joseph's life. Even though he rose to the level of what we might call prime minister of Egypt. Why? Because we know the rest of his story. And we say to ourselves, yeah, I don't really want to sign up for that. I don't want my brothers to hate me so much that they try to kill me. 
I don't want to be sold into slavery. I don't want to be falsely accused of something I didn't do and thrown into prison. I don't want that life. Well, that would be natural, wouldn't it? But I want to suggest, perhaps, we should want to sign up for that life. Well, maybe not the details, but maybe in our best moments, we should say to God, God, put me through the ringer, make me climb the mountain, let me walk through the valley, because I know, God, what adversity does for people. At least people who are willing to keep their faith. Joseph's story is amazing. He's a young man probably in his teens, maybe 17 at some point in the story. And uh, he reports on his brothers to his father, a bad report. In other words, he's a narc, a tattletale, somebody who goes out and finds the bad news and brings it back and tells on them. He does that when he's a very young man, and maybe, maybe he was just a brat. You know, you may have had a brother like that or a sister like that, just a brat. Always trying to get you in trouble. Maybe, or maybe, it was his job. Oh, wait, think about his, his father. Who's that? Jacob, the heel grasper, the deceiver. Think about his mother, Rebecca, who connived for Jacob to get the birthright. Rachel, excuse me, get the birthright for her son. Think about the heritage of Joseph, and don't you wonder whether or not Jacob says to his son, his favorite son, I want you to keep your eye on those boys. Let me know if something's going wrong. Tell me the inside scoop. That sounds like possibly what happened. No matter, he was a favorite son and they hated him for it. He was clothed in a robe that nobody else could wear, a robe of many colors, multicolored. It was a robe that made him look royal compared to the shepherd brothers that he hung out with and grew up with. On one particular occasion, Joseph makes matters worse. He goes and he tells his father and his brothers that he's had a couple of dreams said, I had this great dream, and here's the way the dream goes. We were out in the field, and all the sheaths in the field, numbered, 12, all the sheaths, 11 of them, bowed down to me, my sheaths. That's weird. But he had another dream. He said, as a matter of fact, I had a dream where all the stars and the moon, everything bowed down to me in the heavens. Really strange. Now, this is a guy who's already told on his brothers. And then he has the audacity to tell this story, which is a dream to them. Let's call that youthful indiscretion, shall we? Um, you know it's true, right? That not everything that's true needs to be said. <laughs> you learn that as you get a little bit older and get a little bit wiser. And as conniving as Jacob was, he'd learned that too because he said to Joseph, you know, you probably ought not to tell those stories around your brother. But Joseph, being an impulsuous, perhaps impetuous, 
and maybe self-righteous young man tells the story anyway and puts himself in trouble. After all that has taken place, Jacob decides that Joseph needs to check up on his brothers again. And this time Jacob sends Joseph out to find his brothers, ostensibly to see if they need anything. He travels 40 miles to Shechem to find his brothers. That's not by car. It goes kind of slow. 40 miles to find his brothers. When he arrives at Shechem, they're not there. And he asks some people in the field, have you seen anybody like 11 people who look like me? I'm kind of filling in the gaps. Have you seen anybody who might be a brother? I got 11 brothers and they've been out here herding sheep and they say to him, oh yeah, we know. We overheard them and they said they were going to Dothan. Well, that's another 14, 15 miles away. So Joseph takes off for Dothan. And before he ever arrives, they see him coming. They know his gait. They may especially know his coat. And they say to themselves, let's get that dreamer. Let's show him a lesson. All of this conversation is taking place while Joseph is arriving and he doesn't know. And he walks up to them. The the Bible doesn't tell us how it happened. You have to use your imagination. Did they just grab him by the scruff of the neck immediately? Did they tell him to sit down and have a meal with them? And play with him a little bit? And act like everything was okay? And while he's eating his meal, one of them comes up from behind him and grabs him and says, Sucker, we got you now. I don't know how it happened. All I know is that in that context, they said to him, We are tired of you. You've been a problem for us a long time, or we're going to get rid of you. So they said they were going to kill him. And they threw him in a well, a dry well. And while he's in the dry well, Reuben, an older brother who has a little bit more good sense than the rest of them, says, you know what, this is not a good idea. We shouldn't kill our brother. He's he's our own flesh and blood. Let's not do this. Let's, let's just cool our jets here a little bit. And they all agree, apparently. Reuben goes off to get some supplies. But while he's gone, a group of Midianites or Ishmaelites, depending on where you're reading in the Bible, named Midianites or Ishmaelites, come along. It's a caravan of people who are traitors. And they stop. And Judah decides he's got a plan. Let's let's carve out the middle, he says. Let's not kill him. Let's not let him go. Just sell him. So they sell him. They sell him to the Midianites, and the Midianites put him on their caravan, and off they head south to Egypt. Reuben comes back, and as you might expect, he's a bit upset. Now we go, what are we going to do, fellas? The guys say, well, there's a way to do this. What we'll do is we'll take his robe, which we've already taken from him. We'll rip it in shreds, and then we'll dip it in goat's blood, and then we'll take it to our father. And we'll say to Jacob, we found this coat. You know he was on a 40-mile journey to see us, Father. You know the perils of a trip, Father. Look what happened to him. 
Jacob, of course, grieves. Only two of his sons came from his favorite wife, and Joseph was one of them. Oh, by the way, the brother who sold Joseph into slavery after Reuben left was Judah. Ring a bell? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Through that tribe comes Jesus. Anything else ring a bell about that tribe and Jesus? Judah. He's the one who saw his daughter-in-law and thought she was a prostitute and bore a child with her. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lineage of Jesus. There are storylines like that all through the Bible where God takes ridiculously sinful, sinister, mean-spirited, murdering kind of people and accomplishes His will in spite of what they've done. That's part one for Joseph. He's quite a young man now, maybe not even 20 when he's sold into slavery. He's sent to Egypt, sold to Potiphar, a very high official in the king's court. All things considered, it's a great place to be sold into slavery. Egypt, by the way, is at the pinnacle of nations all over the world. It is the most powerful and the most prosperous. No one has trouble in Egypt. Unless maybe if you're a slave. It's a wonderful, glamorous place to be. So there's Joseph and Potiphar's house. It could have been worse. Joseph continues to do what he's always done, which is to serve a master. In the previous setting, it was his father. Now it's Potiphar. He serves Potiphar faithfully, and and the text says, when Potiphar saw that he was a good worker and the Lord's favor was upon him, he decided he would give him everything he wanted. And he put him in charge of all his affairs. So Joseph, sold into slavery, slightly escaping death, is now in the service of Potiphar. And Potiphar identifies him as a man of character and gives him charge of all his affairs. Things are going well for Joseph. He's starting to rise to the top. And then there's a bump in the road. He's doing his job. He apparently is a handsome young man, and apparently Potiphar's wife notices, and on one day, she asks him to sleep with her. And Joseph says, I I think this is really telling his words. His, His words are, no, I can't do that. Why would I dishonor God and your husband? Why would I dishonor God and insult humanity? I can't do that. Of course, a jilted lover is um, dangerous, and she grabs his cloak and he flees from the chamber. 
and she screams for an attendant, and the attendant comes in, and she says that Joseph tried to take advantage of her. Who are you going to believe? The attendant, the wife, or the slave? When Potiphar comes back, he hears the story. And it's interesting. He doesn't execute him. That, that would have been standard. Nothing wrong with that. Not in Egypt. Not in this culture. An adulterer took advantage of my wife. I'll, I'll execute him. But he doesn't. Maybe you're not as suspicious as I am. But I'm thinking to myself, Potiphar knew. Potiphar knew. He knew his wife. He said, I can't kill that young man. So I'll put him in prison. But he puts him in the king's prison, which, all things considered, is a pretty good place to be if you're going to be in prison. It's kind of with the white-collar criminals, as we see. And in prison, it became apparent to those around him that Joseph could interpret dreams, and also it became apparent that he really was a good guy. And so, once again, the jailer raises him to the top of the pecking order, and he's in charge of everything. And finally, someone comes to him and says, Joseph, um, I hear you interpret dreams. The man who came to him is a cupbearer to the dream to, to the king. A cupbearer to the king is a high-ranking official. A cupbearer to the king is one who's known to be trusted. A cupbearer to the king is the kind of job you'd want because you can have everything. The cupbearer to the king says, I've been thrown in prison and falsely accused. <laughs> you know, I don't know what they talked about in jail. But maybe Joseph had already told his story. Maybe not. I'm sure he related to the story of the cupbearer. He might have just said to himself, yeah, I get it. Falsely accused. So, the cupbearer tells him the dream that he has. And Joseph looks at the cupbearer and he says, well, I'll tell you what that means. It means that you're going to be free. You're going to be exalted to your position again. And once again, you'll serve the king. You're going to be exonerated. Well, it happened. A couple of days later, the king called him out. He was exonerated. He was once again at the right hand of the king as his cupbearer. Another man who was uh, the chief baker, apparently, in Pharaoh's palace, sees what happens and goes to Joseph and says, hey, I had a dream too. He tells him the dream, and in the dream he had three baskets of bread, and the birds ate from it. It was on top of his head, and Joseph says, well, I got bad news. Uh, your dream means that you're going to be called up too, but they're going to lop off your head. It, do you wonder what the guy thought at that point? I wish I hadn't known. You know, <laughs> why did I ask? Um, or maybe he thought to himself, I'm glad I know. Maybe I can make my escape. I don't know what he thought, but that's some bad news. 
He's got to be terrified at this point because the last time the good news came true. Why wouldn't the bad news come true? And sure enough, he's taken out. President and he's executed just like Joseph foretells. By the way, before the cupbearer left Joseph's presence to go to be once again with Pharaoh, Joseph said, I, I just have a simple request. This is why it makes me think maybe Joseph told him his story. He said, I got a simple request. When I get out, just tell the king I'm imprisoned falsely. Will you do me a favor and get my story out there? Cupbearer says, well, for you anything, man. I mean, you help me see the light of day. I'm going to be restored. And he goes out, and he doesn't tell the king. What a wussy. What a self-centered brat. Maybe he's just fearful. Eventually, two years later, it's like he has one of those aha moments. Oh, yeah, there was that guy in prison. The reason he had the aha moment is because, in my opinion, it was in his best interest. Because now Pharaoh is troubled by his own set of dreams. And the aha moment for the cupbearer, here's my opportunity to look even better. He says, there's a guy in your prison named Joseph who can interpret dreams. Joseph comes out of prison and interprets the dream for the king. And you know the rest of the story. The interpretation of that dream says there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So king prepared during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine because that's the only way to survive. And the king says, you're brilliant. I'm going to uh, sort of crown you vice regent. You're going to be the prime minister. You're going to be second in command. You're going to be over this entire operation and just about anything else. That's what I'll give you. And Joseph rises to the heights of his rank. By the way, I think it's interesting when you read a story, what's there and what's not there, right? You have to believe that the writer of Genesis is telling this story for a reason. And you have to assume that he's telling you certain things and not telling you other things. And perhaps not telling you other things is his wish for you to think of them. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'll tell you what I don't see. Anywhere in the story, I don't see resentment or bitterness from Joseph. And nowhere in the story do I hear him saying, God, why me? Now, you may say to yourself, oh, quit being so Pollyanna. Surely he said that. Maybe he did. But surely the writer wants us to see an individual who walked through adversity without being bitter and self-centered and angry. It's a wonderful story. Of course, after Joseph is sold into slavery and rises to the level of prime minister, he saves the nation, and ironically, he saves those who sold him into slavery, his brothers. Because, think of it, friends. Egypt is the breadbasket of the world. 
It's like the, is it San Fernando or San Joaquin Valley in California? What's the name of that one? San something or another. I've driven through it. It's beautiful. It's unbelievable. I know we get fruits and vegetables from other places, but that place is the, the breadbasket of a lot of our grocery stores. Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. The Nile River flooded frequently, and that flooding gave irrigation to the crops. In the middle of otherwise a desert, a fertile valley. People routinely came to Egypt to buy grain. Nations routinely bowed the knee to Pharaoh, asking for deliverance from some form of famine or poverty. In this case, Egypt is the only place that's got grain, but the only reason they have grain is because of Joseph. They too would have been in famine. Can you imagine what the ancient world would have been like without this insight of Joseph? We can't. Catastrophic. Joseph saves not only his family, but an entire region in the Middle East. When that is uh, set up and Joseph uh, receives all kinds of accolades and power for his dreams and puts together the grain houses, Jacob says, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. That's Joseph's father. Fellows, you need to go to Egypt and get some grain. First, the sons tried to convince him, and finally he decided to do it, and off they went to get grain in Egypt. When they arrived, of course, Joseph's in charge. They look at him, they don't know who he is. I'll just fill in the gaps for you here. I, if you're like... Is it working now? There you go. I think that was my fault. Really, they, they didn't know who he was? Didn't recognize him? Aren't there some family resemblances? You know how whenever you meet someone's brother, and you've never met the brother, you look at him and you say, oh, he, he does his mouth the same way. Or, or he has that same look whenever he, you know, I know what you mean, you know what I mean. Surely I'm thinking, when they saw Joseph, they must have thought to themselves, oh, wait a minute. He, there's no reason to believe that from the text. I just wonder. So why didn't they? Well, first of all, he's all dressed up in this huge apparel of sort of a vice regent, whatever that looked like. Uh, furthermore, you might know from Egyptian culture, those of high standing in Egyptian culture, they were really into makeup. Okay? You know, the eyes and everything. I mean, you looked completely different than normal when you were one of them. There's a third reason, it seems. He speaks Egyptian. They don't hear a Hebrew word coming out of his mouth. So whatever characteristics might have been in his mouth or his eyes or whatever, you can hardly see it for the veneer of Egypt all over. So they don't understand who he is, but he knows them. And basically he taunts them. 
He tells them he doesn't believe their story. He tells them they're spies to check out his country, and they beg and do whatever they can to get the food. And then he says, okay, here you go. Here's your grain. Put it in your sacks. They pay him for the grain, and they take off. But the taunting is just beginning. As they take off, um, they stop for a rest stop, and um, they open their bags, and inside their bags are the money, is the money. The money they used to buy the grain. They're terrified. They go ripping back to town. Sorry, we found our money in there, and Joseph says, well, I told you you were thieves. You bums, now I'll do you one better. I'm going to put you in prison. No, 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 we, no we're really, we, that was a mistake. I don't know how it got it. Really? Thieves? I mean, they got nothing, right? They're just begging. I, I wonder how long it went on. If I'd have been Joseph, it would have gone on a day or two. I would have just come and visited them and let them plead their case and then dismissed them and put them in prison a little longer. I don't know how long it went on, but it went on enough to terrify them. And finally, he says to them, um, okay, I'll let you go on one condition, and, and here it is. What I want you to do is bring back your youngest brother. Because he'd ask about their family. The youngest brother, remember, is the birth brother of Joseph's mother. And he wants to see him. They said, oh, okay. I, I, our father won't allow that. Okay. All right. All right. And off they go. They get back to uh, Canaan and of course, Jacob is very grateful for the grain, and, and I'm thinking to myself, he's saying to himself, I hope this grain doesn't get used up before the rains, rains come, because if the rains come, then we'll be okay. We won't have to go back to Egypt, because he's heard the story about Benjamin, and he doesn't want to send Benjamin back. Well, eventually, they have to have more food, and Benjamin goes back with them, and when they come back that time, Joseph is still toying with them. He brings them in for a feast. Do you remember this part of the story? He brings them in for the feast, and he lines them up at a table, we assume, a table in birth order. And he puts Benjamin, the youngest, at the head of the table. Now, at this point, surely they're not so stupid that they're not being suspicious. They're looking around. What? How does he know this? He probably Googled it or something. I mean, he just knows the family. No, how does he know this? It, and then they uh, eat lavishly. And then Joseph sends them on. <laughs> and this time when he sends them on, he puts a silver cup, his silver cup, in Benjamin's bag. And when they stop again, they find um, the silver cup in the bag, but only because... Someone from Joseph's office comes after him first and says, my master's missing his silver cup. No, we'd never do that, thieves. No, we'd never do that, crooks. No, we'd never do that. You can check anybody's bag and you can check all our bags and whoever's got that silver cup in it, if it's there, we wouldn't do it. They're in big trouble. You can take them back to be your slave. Of course, it's in Benjamin's cup. They go back on knees again begging Joseph. At this point, he finally, he finally 
reveals himself in tears. And he says, go get dad. I want to see my dad. They return and Joseph gives them a particular spot in Egypt. Courtesy of Pharaoh. And they live there. And they make it a good land. But when Joseph uh, tells them to settle there, and they do, and they experience this wonderful land of Egypt, finally their father dies, Jacob. That was the story from Genesis that you heard this morning. Jacob's request was, you know what, this has been great. Joseph's awesome. We have plenty to eat. But whenever I die and I don't need to eat anymore, I want to be in Canaan, okay? Take my bones back, that's home. So they agree to do so and they take his bones back. And when they come back to see Joseph, after that burial ceremony takes place, they're terrified. Well, you can figure why they're terrified. Jacob's dead, and now they think Joseph is really going to take advantage of them. He's been patient for a lot of years, and he's been patient for a few here too, and And now they know their just desserts are on the way. And Joseph says to them, and this is the key phrase, Know, my brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Can't you see what happened? It didn't make any difference what your intentions were. God used it for good. And I forgive you. That's a big man. It really is. Because he didn't need them. At the end of uh, this story, chapter 50, what you'll find is that when Joseph is about to die, he says to his brothers who remain, I want you to send my remains back to Canaan too. Because I know God is going to give you an exodus. And whenever your exodus comes from this land, I want you to take my bones with you. He never forgot the promise of Abraham. This is the end of that patriarchal section in Genesis. Joseph says, I know the story and I believe it. And I believe it so much I want you to take my bones back because you're going to get out of here one day and I want to go with you. You know how long they stayed in Egypt? 430 years. And when they left, they took the bones of Joseph. That's a guy who had some foresight, isn't it? A guy who was shaped by adversity. A guy who had a tremendous faith in God. What does it take to be like this. Or to put it another way, what do we need? What do we need in order for adversity to shape our faith in this way? I think the first thing we need in order for adversity to shape our faith in this way, by the way, You need this because adversity will not shape faith in you if you don't have this, right? Adversity can just shape bitterness in you. So what do we need in the face of adversity in order to be shaped 
in our faith. I think the first thing we need is the ability to rejoice when trials come our way. You're saying to yourself, well, that sounds good, but how? I don't know other than to take the advice of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 and other places. Rejoice in the Lord always, underline always, boldface always, italicize always, rejoice in the Lord always, and then I'm going to say it again, if you didn't get it the first time, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about everything, but in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends, overarches all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind when you rejoice. Who wants to rejoice when they're getting beat up? Anybody? I don't want to be your friend if you're that kind of person because you scare me. No, we don't want to rejoice when we're getting beat up. We choose to rejoice. So in order to have a faith that has been shaped by adversity, we got to rejoice. we got to have the ability to rejoice in the midst of the trials. Second, if we're going to have a faith that's shaped by adversity... We have to have the patience to endure difficulty. Rejoicing is one thing. Patience is another. Both are important. But you've got to have patience to endure difficulty. I mean, honestly, I have a little bit of patience. But I have only a little bit of patience. And I go about that little bit with God. And then I say, okay, God, I got the story. I caught the message. I'm listening. Now it's time for it to be over, God. Right? You relate? No, we don't need that kind of patience. Everybody's got that kind of patience to endure a little while. In order for our adversity to shape our faith, we have to have the patience that just endures. On and on and on. Did you ever wonder what is um, the baseline for these things. I, I'm going to say something about that in, in point number three. I think also in order for our faith to be shaped by adversity, we have to have the grace to avoid bitterness. Bitterness that comes through the hardship. Here's what I was about to say. You know what the baseline, it seems to me, you, you think about it yourself and decide for you, but it seems like the baseline of bitterness for me is self-centeredness. It's not hard. It's not the hardness. It's not the difficulty. It's not the this. It's not the that. It's the self-centeredness that says this to God or to others. I don't deserve this. I don't need this. I should get a better life than this because I deserve it. And whenever I go there, which is over and over again, it's just a manifestation of my self-centeredness. When I go there, I'm saying, I need something else because I deserve something else. And you ought to love me enough to give me something else. And it sounds like a three-year-old. 
which is me. I'm absolutely self-consumed. But I need the patience and the grace to avoid bitterness because bitterness kills me. Also, in order to have my faith shaped by adversity, I need the wisdom to see God's hand or God's activity in my life. Now, when I say see the hand of God, I don't mean literally see the hand of God. When I say see the hand of God, I don't mean that you can connect the dots. When I say see the hand of God, I'm not suggesting that you can tell somebody else, I know exactly what God's doing in my life right now. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the eyes of faith to see. I'm talking about being able to see through the eyes of faith when God is absolutely invisible. And when everything is going wrong, the eyes to see... To see that God is there in the activity of my life, even when I can't see him. That's the kind of faith I need in order to be shaped in adversity. Wow, is that hard. But it's faith. The final thing I think we need in order for our faith to really be shaped by adversity is that we need to be Able to believe and have faith that God is working out everything for our good. Again, back to Paul. We need to believe what he said. That all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. Do you realize if if we believe that, or should I say, when we believe that, because our faith is not strong enough to always believe it. When we believe that, do you realize how ironclad our life is? Have you ever thought about how nothing can do anything to you except what is good for you when you have that kind of faith? That's the kind of faith that Paul says you need to have. If you have that kind of faith, you can be shaped under the pressure cooker of life, the adversity Well, that is life itself. But there's something else to that kind of faith. Not only that God is working out good in your life in spite of the fact that it seems like that, but you have to believe. And this is the only way you can believe that. The only way you can believe that God is working out something good in the midst of hardship and adversity is this. You've got to believe that God is good. You have to believe it. And that believing comes without understanding a lot of times. You, know, you actually have to believe that God is good in order to believe that he's working out everything in your best interest, right? That's the baseline. God really is good. I don't know um, if you noticed. But of course I did because I put it together. <laughs> It looks like that could be a prayer, doesn't it? Actually, I, I wrote it as a prayer. And what I'd like to do is to conclude by praying the prayer. And what I'd like you to do is enter into the prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Lord,
I pray that you will grant us the ability to rejoice when trials come. That you will give us the patience to endure under any difficulty. That you will allow us the grace to avoid the bitterness that comes from hardship. That you will provide us the wisdom to see your activity in our life and to believe that you're there even when you seem invisible. Dear gracious Lord, grant us the faith to believe that you are always working out everything for our good and that someday you're going to make all things new. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.